If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair uh, in front of you or your chair. And we're going to be in James, which is almost all the way to the end of the Bible. It's after the bigger book of Hebrews. And it's before 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. And we're jumping back into a series that we started uh, at the beginning of the fall and then took a break the last two months. And we're going to finish it up over the next couple of months as we're looking at this letter written by James to the early church. And so we're looking at James chapter 4. You're going to look for the big number 4. And then we're just going to be in the first 10 verses from there. And as you're turning there, I want you to think and reflect upon your life. Do you have images from your life that are etched into your brain? That without much effort, you are able to recall those images and to reflect upon them. For me, I remember being a junior in college, and after being out of a Bible study for a couple of years, I was invited into a Bible study. Ironically, they were not studying the Bible, they were studying a book. And I remember uh, for about seven or eight years, I had not read a book at all. I found cliff notes, I found something else so that I did not have to read a book. But they were reading a book, and so I had to read a book. And I remember being too cheap to buy it, and so I found it online for free. And during my breaks in college, I would go to the computer lab, which was down beneath the library. And I'd go to the computer lab and find this book online and read it. And one of the images burned into my brain is that one day after reading about the third chapter, I remember sitting there being entirely frustrated by this book. Because it felt like the author was saying time and time again that your life is about God, your money is about God, your work is about God, everything you have should be about God. And I remember being frustrated because I thought, how do you make money writing a book that just on repeat says the same thing over and over and over and over again? It was in that moment, the light turned on. A kid growing up in the church, a kid going to Christian school had never heard that all of life should be about God. All I'd ever heard was that life was to not go to hell. And for the first time in my life, I heard that everything is about God and it is for his glory and that is actually for my good. And that moment is forever etched into my mind from here on out because it was a decisive moment in my life. You see, those kind of images sink deep into our brains, and as they do, they begin to shape how we view the world, they begin to shape how we view life, and they actually begin to shape the steps and the direction of our life. So often, the images that we have in our mind, the things that we are looking at, begin to help or begin to guide us in a certain direction through life. So the question is, what are those images for you? Or in another way, what is it that you are looking at? Because James is going to challenge us with that this morning. He's going to challenge us with what we're looking at. And as he does, here's going to be the main point that he's going to challenge us with. He's going to say, where you are looking is actually where you are loving. So look to the Lord. Those images that are guiding and shaping your mind and your heart reveal what you love. And so we must be a people that love the Lord, that look to the Lord. See the Lord, because anything else is going to cause massive destruction and division in our lives. And so with that, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. We're in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. And as we do, would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? This is just our way of honoring the fact that the Most High God is speaking to us in this moment. 
James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So this is one of the more well-known passages in James, where James is just helping us dig deeper and really trying to reveal our deeper heart issue that is at the core of our fights and our quarrels among one another. And for us to understand this, we have to zoom out and get a bigger picture of James. I know it's been a few months since we've looked at James, so let's kind of zoom out and, and try to put the pieces back together so we can understand where James 4 picks up. And what we see is that James is one of the early letters in the New Testament. It's one of the earliest books of the entire New Testament. And it's written by Jesus' half-brother James who earlier in his life thought Jesus was crazy and did not believe that he was the sovereign king of the universe until Jesus died and rose from the dead and that utterly transformed James' view of Jesus to the point that now he's writing to the early church and in chapter 1 we see that he's writing to the 12 tribes, if you will, that are, are in the dispersion, that he's writing to these people dispersed all across the known empire, and he's writing to connect faith in Jesus Christ to our daily lives. He wants us to understand that if we believe in Jesus, it should actually change the way we live. There are people who say, I believe in Jesus, and their life is no different, and what do we call them? Hypocrites. <laughs> Rightly so. Because if we actually believe in Jesus, it should change us. Change the way we think, change the way we act, change the way we interact. It should change everything about us. And James wants us to see this, but he also knows that by living for Jesus, life will be difficult. Jesus says in John 15 that we're not greater than him. And because they hated him, if we follow him, the world will hate us as well. We too will be persecuted. And James picks up that theme early in chapter 1 and says, in light of that, we should count those trials as joy. And the way we do that is we don't look horizontal first, but rather we look vertical and we live in light of God and we live in light of eternity and we seek the wisdom that comes from God. And so chapters 1, 2, and 3 are just James explaining how we seek the wisdom from above and then how that wisdom should be played out in every sphere of life. Until so the end of chapter 3 where he actually culminates chapter 3 on wisdom from above that leads to peace. That if we look for worldly wisdom, it brings nothing but division. 
Last four or five years, isn't that what we've seen? When we look to the world, it's very divisive. So he says, look to the Lord. As we look to the Lord, it brings unity and it brings clarity for us to actually live for Jesus Christ. And so now James is wanting to help us to see in light of that, how should that change the way in which we interact with one another? And to help us to see this, he's going to show us two paths or two, really, two areas that we look. And then how do we actually look in the correct direction? Okay, so let's look at these. The first is looking to the world. When we look to the world, James just reveals what's at the heart of that and what the result of that is. And he begins to tie the peace that comes by looking to wisdom from God that should actually lead to peace among us. And yet so often we have division, we have fights, we have quarrels. And so what do we do? Well, notice how James draws this out, starting in verse 1. He draws it out through the use of questions. As he does so, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So, so just pause for a second. Notice what James is doing. He knows the Lord. He knows the wisdom that the Lord gives. And then he's looking at our relationships. And as he's doing that, he is observing the character of our relationships. And he's saying there's fights and there's quarrels. And he doesn't just stay there, but he begins to ask questions about that. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we do not aimlessly move through life, but rather we take time to think about our life. To take time to think about what drives us. To take time to think about why am I acting that way that is contrary to the way of God. We think about our hearts. We think about our minds. And that's what James is wanting us to do through these questions. Like just pause for a moment and to think about your life and think about why this is happening in your life. And so he's looking at these horizontal relationships and he's seeing that there's fighting. And then he asks a second question, is it not this? It's a question that also kind of has the answer, isn't it? Because notice what he says. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The reason why there's fights is because you have desires. And those desires are not submitted to Jesus Christ. And they end up clashing with others. This is what's so toxic in our world today. The whole idea of follow your heart. Well, more than likely, my heart and your heart will not be aligned. And so if I follow mine and you follow yours, eventually there's going to be clashing. And eventually there's going to be destruction. So who wins? Often, might is right at that point. And we see that in our world and we say, that's unjust. So how do we put all that together? James says, well, we should not be running after our own passions, our own desires. But rather have our passions and desires shaped by something entirely different. And notice how this plays out. Look at verse 2. He says, you desire and you do not have. So you have this passion, you have this thing that you're wanting, and you want it so bad but you're not getting it, and so that gap between where you're at and where you get it, you keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing, and you're willing to push so far that notice what he says. So you murder. And you might be like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. <laughs> I've never murdered anybody, so I don't understand how we can get from my passion to uh, uh, wanting something so bad that I murder. Well, doesn't Jesus tell us in Matthew 5? He said, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, not even to hate somebody. You see, we got to think about murder and much of sin on a line of continuum. 
so easy to put murderers in a category and be like, I'm not them. But if we put it on a line of continuum and we think the very same seed that sprouts into murder is the very same seed that sprouts into hate. In fact, hate is one of the steps that will eventually lead you to murder. The difference between my hate and a murderer is the grace of God preventing me from murdering somebody. So at that point, I'm really no different. I'm actually only a few steps away from doing the same thing that murderer does. Because I have a passion that is driving me. That wants it so bad I'm willing to remove whatever barrier possible so I can get what I want. And for some people, the final barrier is to murder. And so James says, we need to watch out. Then he says, not only do you desire and don't have, so you murder, but you covet. You look at what somebody else has and you really, really want it. I've got to have it. It's got to be mine. But you don't get it. So what do you do in that tension when you want it so bad and you don't get it? He says you fight and you quarrel. We see this every Christmas, don't we? Especially if there's like the cool toy that comes out. You know, I think it was years ago, the Tickle Me Elmo or, or whatever, and you would see the stores would have this item and everybody would flock to the store. And to get this, whatever it is, they start punching each other. No longer are humans creating the image of God. Rather, they are competitors preventing you from getting the very thing that you want. And so they become your enemy. And you fight. And when we do that, it begins to breed this discontentment in us that leads us to do whatever it takes to get what we want. But you might be thinking, hold on a second, okay. So I, I get that I desire, I covet and I can't obtain so I fight and quarrel okay so so what's the answer well notice what James says next he says you don't have because you don't ask oh so the way to prevent fighting is to just ask the Lord how many of you have asked something from God and are still asking something from God and are still asking from something from God and are wondering this doesn't seem to be working. I'm asking, but I'm not getting. So what do we do about that? Fortunately, James anticipates that. Because look at verse 3. He says, you ask and you don't receive. So he knows that there's a category that we're fighting because we want something so bad, and he says, maybe you should be asking for that. Okay, for those of you who are asking and not receiving, maybe there's this other category that we're asking wrongly. Because he says, you ask, you don't receive, because you ask wrongly. And what's the, what's the foundation or the reason for asking wrongly? Because you desire to spend it on your own passions. In that moment, you're not thinking, what does the Lord want from me? You're thinking, what do I want from the Lord? We don't say, Lord, your will be done. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We say, Lord, my kingdom come. My will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So please answer my prayer. We treat Jesus like he's a genie in a bottle. And if we just rub it right, it comes out and it's going to grant us our wishes. And James says, you're asking wrongly. You want your own passions. You don't care about the Lord in that moment. You only care about yourself. And God is a means to get what you want, which I would say the thing that you want is now your God. Because that's the thing you're serving. And James actually says the same thing. Although differently. Look at verse 4. 
He says, you adulterous people. Again, kind of confusing, right? If you're, if you're reading this, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I've not committed adultery. But James says, anytime you elevate something above God, you've committed adultery on God. Anytime you, you are looking at something and you want it so bad that God is not the end, but he's a means to get that other thing, he calls it adultery. It's actually the language that the prophets would regularly use. I mean, the prophet Hosea, he was to demonstrate how the people of God had wandered and committed adultery and failed to trust in the Lord. And we know this in our own relationships, right? I mean, how many of you, if you're married, would love it if your spouse came home and said, I will love you if you make dinner? I will love you if you make the bed. Most of us would be like, that's not love. But how often we do that with the Lord. I will love you if you make my situation better. If you don't answer my prayer in the way that I want, then I'm going to take matters in my own hands. And I'm going to fight and quarrel until I get that thing. And in that moment, the Lord is saying, that thing is your idol. That thing is your God that you're worshiping. And you can't worship a thing, and you can't worship me at the same time. Because James asks us an easy question. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? This idea of enmity is really the kind of at the heart of the word enemy. It's this hatred and this strife. And he says, if you want the world so much, you're not wanting God. Because the two are opposed. You can't have both. And so to go after the world is to go away from God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so if you have fights and quarrels in your life, you really have to pause and ask yourself, am I pursuing God or am I pursuing goods? Because we can't pursue both. Jesus even says in Matthew 6, 24, that you cannot serve both God and money. We're created to serve one thing, and that is God and God alone. And so James just is exposing us that the what's causing our fights and what's causing the division even among our world today is because people are driven by their own passions because they're looking horizontally and they're looking at the world and they're not looking to the Lord. But fortunately, James shows us that second path. The first path is looking to the world and the second path he shows us is looking to the Lord. And that's what he shows us, is that we ought to be a people that actually look at the Lord. Well, how do we do that? We'll jump down to verse 7. He kind of sandwiches this section, and verses 5 to 6 are, are really going to be the transition between the two paths. But verse 7, notice what he says. He gives us a series of commands. And right away, he comes out in verse 7, he says, submit yourself. This is a call for us to submit ourselves to God, to actually humble ourselves and realize that we do not have all the answers. To realize that we don't know everything. To agree with the, the author of Proverbs that says there is a way that seems right to a man and in the end it leads to death. Have you ever been in that moment where you're like, this seems so good and so right, and then in the end you're like, why did I do that? And so we have to submit ourselves to the ways of the Lord and admit that He is the one in authority. And we need to be a people that, that look to the Lord and said, I'm yours. Whatever you want of me and from me, I am yours. It's a wholehearted surrender to the Lord. 
And the only way you'll do that is if you see the Lord and you see how glorious he is, that he is not just an addition to your life, but he rather comes into your life and wants to transform your life. It's really what, what, it's what Peter sees in Luke 5. I love how Luke recounts the story of Peter and James and John coming to follow Jesus. If you look at Luke 5, Peter and Andrew are off in a boat. They're fishing all night. James and John are off in another boat. They've been fishing all night. They're tired. They've caught nothing. They get to the shore, and this guy walks along the shore. And as he does, he says, hey, why don't you go back out, and why don't you put down your net again? And if you're like me, I'd be like, I don't know who you are. I'm a professional at this. We've been doing it all night and nothing. Yeah, Peter says, okay, fine. Don't know who you are, but fine, whatever. They go out, back out into the sea, and as they lower the net, it says that they catch so much fish that the boat begins to sink, and they have to holler to their friends, James and John, to bring their boat over so that their boats are filled. And again, if you're a business person in that moment, you're thinking, this is the greatest day in my professional life. I've never made a sale. I've never done as well financially as this day to catch this many fish. And in that moment, Peter gives us a great model. He doesn't count the fish. He doesn't start sizing them up and weighing them and thinking, okay, that's $5 there, that's $2 there. He's not doing any of that. He actually leaves the fish and looks to Jesus and just worships Jesus. And declares that he's willing to follow Jesus wherever Jesus goes. Church, that's the only way out of following the world. Is to be in awe of Jesus. And to say, whatever you want, I'm willing to go. And I'm willing to do. Because when we do that, then we're able to follow the second commandment James gives us. Look at verse 7 again. It's a command, and yet it's a promise. The command is to resist the devil, to not play around with the devil, to not play nice with the devil, to not argue with the devil. You know, Eve in the garden, she talks with the devil. Adam's just sitting there doing, twiddling his thumbs, not doing anything. No, James says resist the devil. Church, we are in a war. And I don't mean the political wars that are happening in the Middle East. I mean a spiritual, all-out, knock-out, drag-out battle until the day we die or Jesus returns. Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, 24, that if we're going to follow him, we need to deny ourselves and we need to take up our cross. It's not a cute necklace that we we wear on a Sunday morning. It is a symbol of death. Dying to ourselves to follow Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2 tells us that that a soldier does not get caught up into civilian pursuits. That when you're in the army, you're not worried about buying houses and how you look and how you dress. You're worried about training for the battle. And that should be true of everyone who calls themselves followers of Jesus Christ. Because Paul tells us in Romans 8.13 that we are to put sin to death. He doesn't say tame it. He doesn't say control it. He says kill it. As John Owen, the 1600s Puritan preacher said, be killing sin or it will kill you. So we are in a war. And so when James says to submit yourself to God and to resist the devil, he is saying to fight with all of your might against the devil and against his schemes so that you might withstand. And if you do that, notice the promise he gives. The devil will flee from you. There's no temptation that is uncommon to man. But when you are tempted, God will always give you a way out. Satan does not have the last word. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the power 
by the Holy Spirit to fight and to resist him. And he will flee. But how do we fight? Look at verse 8. The next command shows us how we fight. It is that we should draw near to God. And then there's another promise that he will draw near to us. We fight Satan not by creating tactical sheets on how we trip Satan up, how we capture him, how we push back on him. No, we fight him by drawing near to God. We fight Satan by getting ourselves to bed on time so that we can get up in the morning, so we can begin our morning reading God's word and praying to the Lord. I don't know how we go through the day fighting or resisting Satan if we have not taken any time to be with the Lord to begin our day. At that point, we're going to lose. So we draw near to the Lord. And the promise is that as we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And so we need, just as we need air to breathe, we need to connect with God daily. Hearing his word, praying to him, enjoying fellowship with him. So that we might have the power to fight. But then we also have the power to fight by walking by the Holy Spirit. We read in John 14 that it, if we come to faith in Jesus Christ, he sends us his Holy Spirit. And what this means is that we, we actually walk by the Spirit. We desire things of the Spirit. As the Spirit convicts us and says, don't go that direction, we don't go that direction. As the Spirit says, go in this direction, we say, okay, I, I'm walking by faith, but I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to follow your, your design and your direction, and we align ourselves with Him. And as we do, God promises that He will draw near to us. We know that as we draw near to Him, he draws near to us, and as that happens, he never leaves us. So even in our most difficult moments, if you've ever talked with someone who walks through deep, dark seasons, who follows Jesus Christ, their refrain is regularly, God met me in my darkest moment. Some of you have experienced that. You've walked through really dark valleys. And in those moments, the Lord met you there. It's a promise of God. And as we go to him, he comes to us. Then James continues with his commands. He says in verse 8, to cleanse our hands. So whatever you're doing, use them for the Lord. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, to work mightily as for the Lord. Not for man. Ephesians 4.1 says that I urge you therefore to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you are called. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, to walk in his ways. To cleanse your hands of the sin and the impurities in your life. To no longer as James then continues, he says, to purify our hearts, you double-minded, to no longer be double-minded where we're following the world and trying to follow God at the same time. You know, the fence sitter is trying to have a foot in one camp and the other. He says, make a decision. Follow me, follow the world. But if you're going to follow me, forsake the world. Because it's glorious. Because it gives us life. Then he continues to show us how we forsake the world and how we draw near. In, in verse 9, he says that we are to be wretched and to mourn and to weep. Again, this is language that the prophets would often use for the people of Israel. When they, when they would talk about the sin of the people, that they should mourn over their sin. They should be sorrowful over their sin. And now James says that's, that's the way we should be. 
that as we think about our sin, as we uh, reflect upon the sinful decisions that we make, we should not laugh about them or make excuses for them, but rather we should be sorrowful. Church, are you sorrowful when you sin? Do you recognize that every time you and I sin, we're sinning against a holy and glorious God? And in that moment, our hearts should weep and mourn. And it should lead us to be serious. Because James says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We should no longer play around with our sin as if it's no big deal. Have you ever been in a moment where, you know, you're sharing stories? Somebody says something that they did. And you know, in your mind, that's sinful. And yet before you know it, your face starts grinning and you start chuckling. Am I the only one that's ever been in that moment before? How easy that happens. And James says, let it not be. Let's not joke about our sin. It costs Jesus his life. It's no joking matter. So verse 10, we should humble ourselves before the Lord. We need to recognize our sin. We need to recognize the purity and the holiness of God. And we need to put ourselves under the hand of God and look to God. Because when we do that, He promises exalt us. After all, isn't that why we have fights and quarrels? If we really get down to the root of our fights and quarrels, it's because we want some sort of exaltation. We want some sort of praise. We want people to say, good job. Or that's cool that you have that. Or, man, I wish I got to meet that person. saying, don't look for worldly praise. Look to the Lord. Humble yourself. Don't go up. Go down. As you do that, He will exalt you. But how do we do this? Because it is incredibly tempting to fight and to quarrel. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes we do it just because we really, really want that thing. So how do we move from looking to the world to looking to the Lord? That's what we're going to see lastly. That's the lane to look to the Lord. The way we go from selfishness to savoring our Savior, James shows us right in the middle in verses 5 and 6. And as he does, he draws us out with more questions. Look at verse 5. He asks a really interesting question, and he uses a theme of Scripture. Look at verse 5. He says, or do you suppose, when he was talking about you can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God, those two are opposing, or do you suppose it is to no purpose Or do you think that the Bible is just writing something that doesn't really matter? Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? That is a very difficult sentence. Essentially, James is saying uh, this whole enemy of God, friend of the world, friend of God, enemy of the world, this whole thing, it's not for nothing. Because all we have to do is just look at the Bible. And the Bible has themes in it that have a purpose. And one of the themes is the jealousy of God. That's why he says, or do you suppose that it's no purpose that the scripture says this? The scripture talks about the jealousy of God. 
and there's a purpose behind it. And James isn't quoting one particular passage, but he's quoting a theme that we see, especially all throughout the Old Testament. If you go to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, in verses 5 to 6, God calls himself a jealous God. If you were to go to Exodus 34, you know the time when Moses goes up on the mountain? He's up there 40 days, and the people are like, oh, this is weird. Where did he go? We need to worship something. And so they create a calf, and they begin to worship the calf. God talks about how he is a jealous God, and so they should not worship other gods. Or even Deuteronomy 4, right before they're about to enter the promised land. God reminds his people that they are to worship him and him alone, and so they should not make any other images because he's a jealous God. Now you might think, okay, that, that seems a little egotistical. It seems arrogant that God would be jealous. Like, why would he be jealous at all? This, this doesn't make sense. Okay, so imagine a couple married, and the husband is cheating on the wife regularly. And the wife becomes jealous of her husband's lovers. What would you think in that moment? How dare she become jealous? That just doesn't make sense. Why would you be jealous? Isn't this okay? Not a single one of us would condemn the wife for her jealousy. We would condemn the husband for his unfaithfulness. Because he made a commitment to his wife. And so she has every right to be jealous of her husband stepping out on her. Because that's my man, not yours. And as people created in the image of God, created to worship God, every time we step out on God and worship something else, he has every right in the world to be jealous of that. And to say, that's not right, because you're mine, not theirs. And so it's a good thing that he's jealous. And because of that jealousy, it leads him to want us back. It leads him to send his son so that we can come back into right relationship with him. Because, he's, because his son died, his son took the wrath of God and rose from the dead, conquering sin and conquering death. He wants us to be in this right relationship, and so it leads him into verse 6. But he gives more grace. He's jealous. He wants you to know him and to experience him. And so when you have rebelled and when you have wandered, he is ready for grace. He is ready to extend that grace. It is by grace that you are saved. Through faith. It's not a work of your own, but it's a gift of God. So that not a single one of us can boast. Not a single one of us can brag and say, look at what I've done. The only thing you and I have to brag about is our spiritual adultery. But God in his goodness has given us grace upon grace upon grace. And so the way in which we receive this grace is what James says at the end of verse 6. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The way in which we receive the grace so that our minds and hearts can be reoriented to the Lord, is that we begin with humility. We, get, we begin by admitting our sin. We begin by looking directly at the cross and saying, that should be me. I deserve the wrath of God. But in God's grace, he sent his son to die for me. And I will be forever grateful for that. So we humble ourselves. And we come to the Lord. And we give our lives to him. And we trust in him. 
and say, apart from you, I deserve hell. Apart from you, I deserve condemnation. And we regularly remind ourselves of these truths. And as we do that, we begin to see the Lord in a new light. And we begin to be propelled to submit ourselves to God and resist the schemes of Satan. Friend, if you are here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, you've not trusted yourself to Jesus, I want to call you to come to faith in Christ this morning. Because the way of the world is going to lead you to destruction and division and eventually condemnation. But when we humble ourselves and say, look, I don't have any of the answers. But you don't believe me? Talk to some of the gray heads in the room. More than likely, they will tell you, I thought I had the answers and now I realize I don't. I always thought that the older I got, the more answers I would have. The older I get, the more dumb I realize I actually am. So we humble ourselves before the Lord and say, I don't have any answers, but you do. And through you, I can have eternal life. And so I give my life to you, Jesus. So what does this mean for us? It means that we need to look in the mirror. If we are regularly in fights and quarrels, it's so easy for us to point out everybody else's faults, but eventually we need to look in the mirror and say, there seems to be a common denominator, and that common denominator seems to be me. What passion and desire is raging in me that is leading to these fights and quarrels? And we confess that before the Lord. Secondly, it means that we, we give Satan no foothold in our life. We don't allow him to enter into our life whatsoever. Uh, free of charge. One of the ways you can do that, next week Sunday. My guess is a lot of you are going to watch the Super Bowl. The moment that clock goes to 0.00 at the end of the second quarter, turn that TV off. You want to give a foothold? Keep it on. You will see sex right in your face. You will see adultery right in your face. And that will give Satan a foothold into your life. Turn it off. Turn it on 30 minutes later and watch the Niners win. But that's beside the point. But we need to be a people that don't give Satan any opportunity. And one of the ways we do that is we look to the Lord, we stir our hearts for the Lord, we turn out anything of Satan, and we say, okay, Lord, I want you. So I spend time with you. I stir my heart in affection for you. I, I find friends that want to talk about Jesus, and we gather, and we do the craziest thing. We talk about Jesus. It's so funny. We'll gather together to watch a football game and then talk about the football game. But so often as Christians, we gather together to have fellowship together but never talk about Jesus. So of course our hearts are not stirred for him because we don't talk about him. We talk about the things we love. And so find those friends of which you can talk about Jesus together and then thirdly, we need to realize we are in a war. Realize that we are in a war, not with flesh and blood, and not even a war with an enemy who is puny or foolish. We are in a war with an enemy that watches us, that knows us better than we know ourselves. And so we fight and so the best ways we fight is instead of playing defense, sometimes your best defense is a good offense. If you play sports, you've heard that before. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense. So how do we do that here? We get ourselves on a budget. 
person and say, Lord, how do I leverage my money for your kingdom? We get ourselves on a schedule and say, Lord, how do I get to know the people in my life so I can tell them about Jesus? We get ourselves around people who can pray for us, who can pray with us, and who can encourage us. And we ask them, how do I leverage my life for the sake of Christ? And we give up all else and leverage ourselves for the sake of Jesus Christ. And the more we are playing offense and following the way of God, the more the ways of Satan and the world, as the hymn says, they grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So church, what are you looking at this morning? What are those images that are etched into your brain that without even noticing, they're actually shaping the decision and the direction of your life? Are they things of the Lord or are they things of the world? Because if they're things of the world, they're going to lead you to destruction. But if they're things of the Lord, they're going to lead you to eternal delight in him. So look to the Lord this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again and again and again for the truth of your word. We thank you that you know all things. And so 2,000 years later, you knew that we needed in 2024 in a divisive and divided world that we would need the truth that James has here. And so I pray that you would stir in us a love for you. I pray that you'd help us to look to you. I pray that you'd help us to see you and to honor you and to worship you. I pray that we would resist Satan and his schemes. We would lay down our passions. And we would run hard after you, Father. Help us, Lord, because the things of the world are so enticing. Help us to lay those down so that we might run after you. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.